0: Hello, you're listening to History and Hope, the history podcast from a Baptist perspective. I'm Mark West. And I'm Matthew Lyon. And today we're talking about a declaration of faith by Thomas
1: Helwes from 1611. More importantly, I just got back from the dentist and half my face is numb. Uh, you might so notice a slight if, difference. if you hear the slurring, it's from the dentist. I promise you it's from the dentist. It's not from anything else. I'm not actually a Calvinist. So yeah. So anyway, um, existing condition. I'll, yeah, I'll work through the uh, the numbness. So we are talking about the first declaration of faith or statement of faith or confession that history has recorded for Baptist people. And that's assuming that you think Baptists or you believe that Baptists did not start from John the Baptist, which you believe, right? You're oh, cessationist. Yeah, It's but they both have the same name, so I don't, I don't see what,
0: what well, the, end prob- of the argument is. They're There's just, no other clear. reason
1: for them to have the same name. Except that they are related. Yes. Yeah. It's obvious. Yeah. Uh, But for other people who do not think that, when we look for Baptists, we don't find them until the 1600s. So at the very least, this is the first recorded... Yeah. Yeah. So one way to identify a Baptist is write down what a Baptist is and then look for people who believe that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And the first time you can really find that is in 1611, or 1609, really, but written down by a group of people 1611 by a guy named thomas Helwys. so quick history john smith thomas helwys that's both spelt with y's were separatists congregationalists who left the church of england uh and so were persecuted in england so moved to amsterdam for freedom for religious freedom When they got there, about 1608, 1609, they started looking at the Bible, their confession, their their faith, the Puritans, all those things, and they came to the conclusion, especially John Smith, who was a pastor, that you shouldn't baptize babies. You should only baptize people who are believers, and they didn't have any other anybody else they agreed with to do that. So John Smith baptized himself, which is one way to do that. (laughs) And then he baptized everybody else. Uh, Then he doubted that later. About a year later, he said, wait a minute, I shouldn't baptize myself. The only other people in that area who were baptizing believers and not infants were a group of Anabaptist Mennonites. But they were a little bit different. So so John Smith tried to join them, and they were like, no, you're not an Anabaptist. They wouldn't let him join. So he changed some stuff (laughs) in his faith. He was a very... He changed a lot. Hellways on the other hand, is sort of as a, maybe as a co-pastor, assistant pastor, said, no, we don't want to join. So he split. And they wrote this statement of faith, a declaration of faith of English people remaining in Amsterdam in Holland, 1611, to sort of distinguish how they were different. And when you look at it, you realize it's different than every other confession of faith that went before it. And with the exception of immersion, it's a Baptist statement of faith. So still baptizing believers But not necessarily by immersion Yeah they hadn't gotten to that yet The first time historically that we can find people who Agreed with hell is And immersed is about 1640 1630 And yeah you could suppose that they were Baptized by immersion But it doesn't say that And so one way to figure out what people believe Is by the statements of faith they put out Because they're official documents As opposed to just like a sermon or a letter Statement of faith is like they spend a lot of time on it And they sign their names to it So when we look at this, this is the first recorded Baptist statement of faith, or at least proto-Baptist, depending on how you view immersion uh, at this time. And so let's look at it and see what have Baptists believed from the beginning, or at least from the 1600s. So we don't actually have to agree on when Baptists started for this episode. We just will start with 1611. And if you need a handy way to remember that, that's the same year that the King James Version came out. Interesting. Yeah, so a little bit of correlation, 1611, King James is the king. He commissions in, uh, actually, when did he commission the King James? Uh, Seven years prior, which would be 1604, right? Yeah. (laughs) Math. My brain is numbed, not just my face. Uh, 1604 was the, the Hampton Court gathering when the Puritans tried to petition the king to change things. He said no. To every one of their requests, ex but he said, but you can have a new translation. The authorized translation. Authorized by King James, hence King James Version. Seven years later, comes out and in sixteen eleven. So the same year he wrote that. Just background. They're not actually directly related. Okay, so what did Baptists believe in sixteen eleven? Which will help us understand what Baptists have always believed and what Baptists should believe to be called Baptists. Because a lot of people call themselves Baptists, but don't match other historical Baptists. So, anyway, what do we got here? It's actually short. How many pages is it? One, two, three, four, five, six pages. Small pages, short paragraphs, twenty-seven statements. Uh, so, one of the shorter Baptist statements of faith we have, but probably longer than most churches have. Would you agree? That this statement's longer than most churches have. Yeah, most Baptist churches today. Of the ones well, uh independent Baptists at least. Yeah, of the of the ones that I've seen. Yeah, yeah. Southern Baptists have a long Baptist faith and message. Yeah, so one of the things it starts with, it starts with the same thing that almost every conservative confession of faith starts with, which is Orthodoxy. In other words, Baptists believe the same thing that all Christians believe, namely, God is real. <laughs> so what does he say here? Uh we believe and confess. Point one. There are three who bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. These three are one God in all equality, by whom all things are created and preserved in heaven and in earth. Genesis 1. So, pretty standard. Like Baptists believe this. Presbyterians believe this. Lutherans believe this. So, points 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 basically just lay out the basic statement of faith for all Christians. Yeah. Trinity, Christ died on the cross, rose again. He died for our sins. You must believe in him. He's born of a virgin. And then the very last two statements, he's coming back. So not very exciting. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, we know that part. Let's skip over it. But given how many Baptists are in America, would you say that all of them believe in those first basic statements? So you walk into a Baptist church in t- Detroit, Atlanta, California. And you're like, this is a Baptist church. They believe that Jesus is God and rose from the dead bodily and is returning
0: bodily. I might assume it, but I might be open to the possibility that it's also not true,
1: that they believe that. So you, so there are many Baptist churches, you're saying, which I agree with you, <laughs> that don't believe this bar- verse part. Right. Yeah, and because we live in the 20th century. Yeah. And post-fundamentalism, modernism, liberalism. That's a big debate because... It actually helps if you think about church names, people dropping the name Baptist from their names. And why? Because they don't. If you see Baptist on the name, people think, oh, no, I'm one of those Baptists. But if not all Baptists are Orthodox, then one of those Baptists could be a Baptist church that doesn't believe that Jesus is God. So I feel like Baptist doesn't tell people a lot of things as much as they think it does. But I guess that's debatable. Well, yeah, I mean,
0: the more widespread a label becomes the less useful it is. The more diverse it becomes.
1: The more diluted it becomes. Yeah. Yeah, so Tom, like Hellwiz in this confession, he doesn't say Baptist. So we can't identify him by his name. We identify him by his beliefs. So the first thing we see is that Baptists, at least these first Baptists, were Orthodox. They believe in the basic Orthodox, what the church has always believed, since the Nicene Creed, since the Apostles' Creed before that, and before that, the New Testament. So if you find a Baptist church, that doesn't believe in these things, orthodoxy, what should you do? What should you call it? You should call it a church. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, it wouldn't even be a church if you don't believe Jesus is God. Certainly not a Baptist church. Yeah,
0: definitely not a Baptist
1: church. Or, or at least not according to what Baptists have traditionally believed. It would have subverted the name Baptist and made it mean something else. So yeah, so Baptists are orthodox. And any Baptist that's not orthodox has stolen the name from historical Baptist, Or at least co-opted it in subverted it and then okay so what does it mean to be a baptist then orthodoxy that covers a lot of things so if you use the baptist acronym that we use today what's the first one b stands for biblical authority test for you yeah you're getting kicked off the podcast if you don't get the answer right
0: i guess yeah i I don't know you
1: hesitated well you know uh biblical authority yeah because the harder ones are the ones with the doubles like the t and baptist so if you're yeah so baptist the first letter stands for biblical authority If you don't believe in biblical authority, you're not a historical Baptist. But that has to be proved. You can't just say it. So what's he say about it? Well, turns out, number nine, paragraph nine, he says, Jesus Christ is the mediator of the New Testament. A little bit further, he is also the only lawgiver and has in his testament set down an absolute and perfect rule of direction for all persons at all times to be observed, which no prince nor any whosoever may add to or diminish from as they will avoid the fearful judgments denouncing them. So what does that say? He's laid, Jesus has laid down in his testament an absolute and perfect rule of direction. That means the Bible is the absolute and perfect rule of direction. And what's, another, what's the other one? The uh, very 23? 23, paragraph 23. So if you're listening to the podcast, you can get this for free online and follow along with us. It's like, like sing-alongs. Do you remember the Disney sing-along? Where the little mouse, mouse ear, like Mickey Mouse head, would bounce along the letters? Sure. At the bottom. You do. You, knew, you used to sing along with it. <laughs> yeah. You never watched the, the Clubhouse? No. What's it called? Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? Is it called Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? Or the musketeer They were Mouseketeers, Mouseketeers yeah. yeah. It had like famous people on it, like Justin Timberlake used to be. Yeah, we never watched the Mouseketeers. Really? Well, so Disney was a premium channel. Oh, so I thought you had some convictions. Yeah, no. We didn't watch it because we did not participate in the world's entertainment. No, we didn't watch it because we also they didn't have cable. scrambled
0: their signals on satellite. <laughs> <They> scr-
1: <laughs> we were too cheap to even get cable
0: <laughs> or any
1: sort of premium channel. So if it didn't come on channel like, was it, 3, 9, 13, 11, 45, we didn't get it. But anyway, when I went over to my friend's house, like all of us, either poor kids or fundamentalist kids. When right. <laughs> When you went over to your friend's house and they had all that cool stuff, they would sing songs and they would have the mouse ears bouncing along so you could follow it. All that to say, there'll be a link in the description to where you can read this uh, Statement of Faith along as we go through it. Yes, but there won't be any cues like bouncing ears. No. You just have to do it on your own. Hopefully you grew up watching Mickey Mouse Clubhouse so you'd know what to do or figure it out along the way. Anyway, 23 – Uh, therefore, the, that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are written for our instruction. So, this sounds really standard, right? Like, there's no surprise here. Remember, this was written in 1611. Right. It just sounds familiar because Baptists have just been repeating it. Therefore, they are to be used with all reverence as containing the Holy Word of God, which is our only direction in all things whatsoever. Our only direction in all things whatsoever. So, that's biblical authority. So, from the very beginning, that's what Baptists have believed. From 1611, when he wrote this first confession, Baptists believe in biblical authority. And I think pr- people might pretty much get that. But in the 20th century, especially in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, there was a huge debate among Southern Baptists about what it meant to be a Baptist. Some people said, if you, the, the genetic theory. So you're related to your family because you were born into your family. You could believe something different than the rest of your family, but you're still related to them. So you're an American citizen because your parents are American citizens. Uh, So they look at Baptists the same way. So if you're a Baptist, you can change all your beliefs, but you're still Baptist because you're a Baptist. And then if you join a Baptist church and they plant a church, no matter what they believe, they're Baptist because they came from Baptist. It's not very sustainable. Uh, The other side of it is Baptists have a distinct set of beliefs, and you have to believe those to be called a Baptist. I think that's much more stable. And not so arbitrary. It's also more logical. Yeah, it's, it's right. So I reject the genetic theory. And that's still a problem. So I don't know who's listening to this. But just because you were planted out of a Baptist church doesn't make you a Baptist. Uh, I have some friends who call themselves Baptist. And it's really just because they're being supported by a Baptist church. Not that they're doing it nefariously, Nefariously, but it just they haven't thought about it. And they don't think it's a big deal, because they really kind of subscribe to a genetic theory. They haven't rejected Baptist; they still like the name, they still like the basic concept. But would they match sort of historic Baptist? So biblical authority, I think, that's a pretty standard one. Uh, church autonomy—that doesn't fit the acronym. It doesn't. Fit, oh, that's right. It's we got to rephrase it. Autonomy of the local church. Right. So B is for Baptist. A is for autonomy of the local church. Right. Normal people say church autonomy, but you gotta rearrange it to fit the fit the acronym. So, yeah. Autonomy of the local church. In other words, no other church outside of your church can tell your church what to do. Every church is independent. So every church is every Baptist church is an independent Baptist church. Yes. Lowercase I independent Baptist. And some have adopted the uppercase independent sort of relation to affiliates. Yes. But if you have another church telling you what to do, you've left the Baptist faith. Okay, so if that's true, then he'll agree with that. And what's he say? Statement 12, paragraph 12. As one Christ- congregation has Christ, so do all. And the word of God does not come out from any one, which is kind of what the Roman Catholics believe. Yes. Neither to any one congregation in particular, but to every particular church— as it does to all the world. And therefore, no church shall cha- I like how he this should challenge any prerogative over any other. <laughs> prerogative being authority, basically. Mm-hmm. A decision comes up. One church makes one decision. Another church makes another decision. No church shall challenge another person's right to do that. And Baptists have always believed that. Baptists have not always practiced that. Independent Baptists, uppercase I, have tried to do that more consistently, but informally, a large portion of Independent Baptist churches get outside direction from prominent preachers, from social influence, peer pressure, and other sort of things. They they don't do things or they do things based on what another church is doing or not doing or would say yeah, about. So them. even if there's no formal structure, the end result is similar. Right. There's a challenge to their prerogative. Like the old song. It's my prerogative. Can you sing it? No. You you just don't want to publicly. Or ever. Ever. <laughs> it's my prerogative. There you go. I did it for you. I knew if I held off you would do it. I couldn't can't not do it. Uh yeah, so that's what every church can say because they're under Christ. And so that's what he says. So every church is autonomous. Now, in that, Hellways is coming from a congregational background. Congregationalism, so the Anglican church is episcopacy episcopal government says there's a bishop and underneath the bishop or deacons or pastors who run individual churches but the bishops over all of those churches separatists left those churches puritans said that's not there's false doctrines false teachings, so they left some of them became presbyterians presbyterian government multiple elders who rule over the church and the congregation doesn't really have a say in what happens uh, whereas episcopal church is one guy and the congregation is having a say But then some left and said, none of those are right. The whole congregation should have a say. Those are called Congregationalists. Congregationalism is not the same as Baptist. Because there are Congregationalists who are not Baptist. Namely, the Congregational government. Or the Congregational denomination, which Jonathan Edwards was a part of. So, hell is, they were already Congregationalists before they became Baptist. So when he says this, he's referring to that sort of Congregational model. The point being... He would have said, if you're not congregational, you need to go back a step. You can't become a Baptist if you're not congregational. Now, that's debatable today. More than a few Baptist friends that I have who do not hold congregationalism very high, they may agree with it, but it's not an important doctrine. What he says here, and the context behind it is, it's a prerequisite to being a Baptist. Uh, And so that's why he says no church can challenge any other, because the congregation has the authority. And that shows up also when they elect officers. Mm-hmm. So number 22, that the officers of every church or congregation, the leaders are tied. Uh, not, not 22, that's what tied. 21. 20, 21, right before that. These officers are to be chosen when they're persons qualified by election and approbation of that church or congregation wherever they are members. So who chooses them? By election of that church. Yeah. In other words, congregational government. Who chooses the pastor? Congregation. And he doesn't. He doesn't stretch out congregationalism because it, he had already talked about it, and it was already the, the sort of the water they were they were swimming in. Um, so to be a Baptist, like these old Baptists, he has a congregational government. They elect their leaders. They run their own churches. Their business meetings. Uh, baptism, obviously, every church is to receive in all their members by baptism, which every church believes that. Catholics believe that. Presbyterians believe that. Every church believes to become a member, you have to be baptized. The question is how and who? The how is not talked about here, but the who is. The baptism or washing with water is the outward manifestation of dying to sin and walking in newness of life. Well, if that's true, who gets baptized? And so he finishes the statement with, and therefore in no way appertains to infants. That's pretty non-controversial. Baptists are known for that. But here it is right in the very beginning. Uh, here's another one. This one's a little more controversial. That, that the members of every church or congregation should know one another, and especially the elders should know the whole flock. How many elders? Uh, more than one. More than one. So here it is, 1611, First Baptist Confession of Faith. When he talks about, he doesn't talk about pastors. He talks about an elder, and he uses it in the plural form. 20. Paragraph 20, that the officers of every church or congregation are either elders, who by their office do especially feed the flock concerning their souls. Again, multiple elders was standard, normal. He didn't even explain it. He just stated it. Right. 1611. So when you when I hear people say, Baptists don't have multiple elders, what I really hear is <laughs> I haven't read Baptist history enough to see that it's been there since 1611. In other words, since the beginning. So I don't want to be harsh, but it's right here. The elders should know the whole flock. The Congress should elect elders, not a single pastor. Now, it's debatable whether—well, it's not debatable. It's, I wouldn't go as far to say you, you have to have multiple elders to be a Baptist, but it's certainly consistent, unless we want to rule out this guy. And of course, as you go through Baptist history, you're going to see it repeated. So multiple elders, and again, so, so Baptists, you have two offices, mm-hmm. which are— Elders, elders and deacons. deacons. So he says that the officers of every church or congregation are either elders who feed the flock or deacons. That's it. No more officers. Correct. Mark's smiling already because he knows the next two words. Deacons, men and women who by their office relieve the necessities of the poor and impotent brethren concerning their bodies. In other words, they take care of physical needs. So Mark. If you're a Baptist, has it ever been a Baptist tradition to have female deacons? Uh, it would seem so. Deaconesses. So you think that women can run the church? Oh, That's a bit of a leap. Oh, well, I just two. assumed that deacons were in charge.
0: Right. Yeah, so <laughs> so they lay out what the deacons are for.
1: Right. So, so what's an elder do? Feed the flock concerning their souls. Yes, concerning their souls, which is... Acts 20, they have the reference, mm-hmm. or not, Acts 6, prayer, ministry of the word. Deacons do not minister. Not, right. Not concerning their souls. Leave yeah. the necessities of the poor concerning their bodies. Right. Acts 6, wait tables, feed food. So Thomas Helwys, 1611, First Baptist Confession of Faith, deacons, men and women. Right. It's not invented by some liberal, egalitarian, Anglican priest who's trying to sneak it into a Baptist church. It's not Russell Moore or Beth Moore yeah, trying to sneak it into yeah. new Baptist church. The churches. problem has been the mutation of how the office right. is used, not who can be in the office. So typical American Baptist church, Baptist church in America, like a Southern Baptist church, what do the deacons do? Often. They are usually they usually function as elders. Right. You have the deacon board. Deacon board decides who the pastor's going to be. You have to run decisions by them. The pastor has to answer to them. In that case, they are functioning like elders. And the way that is traditionally read, conservatives, that uh, elders is res- restricted to qualified men. So if deacons are elders, then deacons can only be men. But here he, he divides it. Two offices, elders who by their office do especially feed the flock concern their souls, and he would restrict that to men. Or deacons who don't lead the flock can be men and women. So in our church, what do we do? With, we have a female deacon. Mm-hmm. What does she do? Do you know? Yeah, I know. Okay, good. <laughs> that was a test. <laughs> I'm trying to- Mark get trying regularly to. tested here. She's the deacon of cleaning, right? <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, she cleans the church. She stocks the, the materials we need. She takes care of the physical necessities yeah. of the church. Uh, so she's a deaconess. Mm-hmm. And if you say that's not Baptist- then you have to say Thomas Helwys didn't know what he's talking about. He wasn't a Baptist. And it's not a new invention that sort of millennials have come up with or liberals have come up with. It's a traditional Baptist practice to have female deacons. Not required, but traditionally allowed. And what they mean, what Baptists traditionally meant by deacons is they take care of the physical needs. So before we say Baptists don't do something, we got to make sure Baptists don't do those things, or, <laughs> or at least they haven't traditionally done them. Uh, so deacons, congregationalism. Okay, big question that always comes up with Baptists and Baptist history. If we're saying this is the first Baptist statement of faith, what about the? Anabaptists. Yes. It's the same name. I mean, yeah, you just. Right? Anabaptist, Baptist. Eventually you just stop saying Anna and you're there. And you're there. You literally just. You're literally saying Baptist every time you say the word, right? So if you say Matthew Lyon or just Matthew, talk about the same person. And that has been the traditional way of looking at it for many people like J.M. Carroll, Trail of Blood, which we'll talk about in a future episode. That's his basic case. Yeah. They were called Anabaptists. And then eventually in the 1600s, they just dropped the Anna, kept the Baptists, and that's who we are. How would you disprove that, though? Compare what the two groups believed. So if you're not an Anabaptist, and you want people to know you're not an Anabaptist, in your statement of faith, you would say things that would contrast with Anabaptist. And that's what Hellwiz does. He makes several, three explicit statements that contrast him. So it's interesting because when Hellwiz and Smith moved to Amsterdam, they're meeting in the home of a Mennonite, of an Anabaptist, which makes sense given their persecuted status. So they knew about Anabaptists. They're meeting literally in the house owned by an Anabaptist. John Smith... Left and try to join the Anabaptist. So hell is this writing this to say we're not with the Anabaptist? And the question would be like, well, how are you different? You both baptize believers. So you're the same. You're both congregational. Right. What's the difference? So there's three things in here. So the first one, number eight, paragraph eight, Jesus Christ, the son of God, is the second person or substance in the Trinity. In the fullness of time was manifested in the flesh, being of the seed of David, Israelite, according to the flesh, the son of Mary, the virgin. So far, Not remarkable. Made of her substance. You believe that, right? Fully man, fully God. Yep. Where Jesus gets his body from.
0: Mary. Yeah.
1: So Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. She conceives. She nourishes a baby. She eats. The baby eats. She, you know, same flesh. So when Jesus is born, he shares, I don't know if he shares the DNA, I guess, whatever physical attributes of his mother. So Jesus probably looked like Mary. I think it's reasonable to assume. Uh, not all Anabaptists believe that. Many Anabaptists, and the ones that Hell was dealing with, believed that M- Jesus got his body from heaven. So a guy named Hoffman, who uh, taught Menno-Simons from once we get Mennonites, said, all flesh is sinful. So if Jesus had Mary's flesh, then Jesus was sinful. Well, that can't happen. So these Anabaptists came up with the idea that a body was created in heaven and was implanted into Mary, sort of like a tiny little baby, and grew. But the body came from heaven. Right. So she was a surrogate. Yeah, she was like a surrogate mother for, a, for an angel baby. <laughs> divine, you can laugh, <laughs> divine angel baby. We can laugh because it's not true. It right. never existed. Uh, but Hoffman taught this, men of science So it's called Hoffmanite Christology. And this is what was going on. So the reason hell was, was like, I can't join the Mennonite church. I can't be an Anabaptist because Anabaptists believe that Jesus came from heaven and not from Mary or the body of Jesus came from. So he says, Jesus is from is the son of Mary, the virgin, made of her substance, which is a way of saying, I'm not an Anabaptist. And at that time, people said, well, what are you? And he would have said, a Bible-believing Christian. Right. Later, they'd be like, oh, you mean Baptist? He's like, okay, Sure. So not Anabaptists because Anabaptists believed in the sort of Hoffmanite Christology where Mary didn't actually have her own baby. It was given to her. So hell is, right from the beginning, 1611, Baptists are not Anabaptists in this sense. Second thing, the ban. So someone sins in your church, won't stop sinning, continues to sin, what's the church to do?
0: So follow the plan of church discipline and eventually remove them from our church
1: excommunication. Yeah, excommunicates them. Tosses them out of the church. <laughs> well, j- excludes them from membership because members are only those who follow Christ. Correct. Okay, that's pretty standard across the board. The Anabaptists would take a step further, as Dwight Schrute said. He was shunned from age four to eight for what? Not saving not g- grease from a can of goose grease. Yeah, goose grease is expensive. Yeah. Um, you should always have a can of goose grease. You can use it for many things. Uh, so Dwight Schrute from the office was, was shunned. He was banned. And what happens when you get shunned? You can't be spoken to. You can't be dealt with. So the Anabaptists, when they would discipline somebody and sort of kick them out of the church, they avoided any contact with that person. If you walk past them on the street, you would not acknowledge their presence. And it was called the ban. And it was very Anabaptist of them. So when Hellwiz wanted to show that he wasn't Anabaptist, he puts in there excommunicants or those who have been kicked out. In respect of civil society, so not in the church, out, out in the street, are not to be avoided. And that is, you know, it's pretty normal. Yeah. But he's saying we're not like the Anabaptists who avoid all contact with excommunicants. He said in our church, in our faith, they're not to be avoided. Which every Anabaptist would say, oh, we don't believe that. Anabaptists don't believe that. So hell is saying, I'm not Anabaptist. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing that Anabaptists is probably most famous for is pacifism. And by pacifism, they mean it is wrong to participate in government. So there's two things you can't do. You can't work for the government, and you can't take oaths. Because what's the Bible say about oaths? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So they took that very literally. So you know when you go and swear swear someone into office, like you take a military oath? I swear to uphold the constitution from enemies, foreign, domestic. Anabaptists said that's wrong. And if you can't swear an oath, you can't work in the government. Baptists don't believe that. And so Hellwiz, being the first Baptist, says that in point 24. He says, therefore, uh, the government is good. Uh, Therefore, they may be members of the Church of Christ, retaining their magistracy. The numbness is—I'm having trouble pronouncing that word with the numbness. Uh, So a magistrate is a government official. It's a broad term for police officers, judges, elected officials. He's saying you can be a member of the Church of Christ and retain your government job. For no holy ordinance of God debars any from being a member of Christ's Church. And Anabaptist would have looked at that, and they did look at it, and they told him, you can't be a member of our Church. You can't be an Anabaptist if you believe that you can be a government worker. Baptists on the other hand have always participated in government. It's been a hallmark of Baptists is that Chaplains in the military, and they work for police forces. So Anabaptists have always struggled in society because they they kind of remove themselves that way. So Helwes is saying, sixteen eleven, we work in the government, and Anabaptist said, well, you're not one of us. And Helwes said, that's fine. We'll start our own church. Sounds like a Baptist. <laughs> yeah, right. <That> sounds exactly <laughs> like a Baptist. And so he did. He started his own church. And then uh, in section twenty five, it says that it is lawful and a just cause for the deciding of strife to take an oath by the name of the Lord. Anabaptists were strongly against taking oaths. They thought it was sinful. Hellwood says, no, it's not. It's it's lawful and a just cause right. for the deciding of strife to take an oath by the name of the Lord. So if you're a Baptist, it's okay to—Baptists believe that it's okay. If you're an Anabaptist, they believe it's not okay. So, Hell was his confession is saying, we're not Anabaptists, we're a different kind of church.
0: Yeah, and b- confessions are often used to answer your specific culture. This wasn't, yeah. this was intentionally written. Yeah. So we can read it outside of that culture and not pick up on what he was intentionally answering. But if you understand the right. setting he's in.
1: It's just not just random stuff. Right. It's saying, these are issues in our current culture that need to be addressed, addressed adre- directly. People are calling us Anabaptists; they think we are Anabaptists. John Smith has left our church to try to join the Anabaptist, so we need to put down something about what we believe that's different to mm-hmm. show how we're different. And so, this is one of the things they take those, work in the government, and it's important to say this is what this is part of the Baptist tradition, not part of the Anabaptist tradition. And then, uh, okay, so the last thing here, this is not conclusive but it's an application. Do you know where I was ordained? Uh, here, right? I don't know. Because if you want to know if I was ordained, what would you ask for? Do you know? Ordination certificate. You ever heard of that? Like ordination just, certificates. Yeah. yeah. We don't do it here because we're more independent than most. So ordination certificates pretty, actually I went to the hospital the other day and in Baltimore. And I went to, inside and I went to the desk and I'm like, hey, parking costs fifteen dollars can i get validated or i said do you have clergy parking because a lot of times clergy parking is free yeah. and she's like yes but you have to show id And i'm like i'm a baptist <laughs> i will not show my certification and take a you know like john bunyan take yeah a license so was, to priest your years in prison <laughs> right yeah i was having to pay the full price really though i just didn't know what she wanted mm-hmm. so i said what do you mean like I'm just a pastor of a Baptist church. She's like, well, bring in your, your ordination certificate. And I'm like, okay. Like, like do pastors carry that around with them? Like when they make hospital visits? Like, I mean, you will from now on. I will right? from now on. <laughs> Except I don't, I don't have one actually. Right. Um, I don't know if I ever had one. So I, I still not really ordained. Ordination certificates are what you take places to show that you're a real pastor. Um, I've been part of ordination councils and call and churches. And I don't know if I've ever been a part of one a college, but often you'll go to college, especially independent churches, independent Baptist colleges. You'll graduate from college, and often the church that you're part of that, that's running the college will have an ordination council with pastors, and they'll ask you questions, and mm-hmm. then they'll all sign their name and give you the sheet of paper. And you go to your next church, and you present that to them and say, look, right. I'm a real pastor. And and it's a real hardcore. they'll They'll tell you, if you ever change anything, you have to send this back. Okay. If that strikes the wrong nerve, there's a reason. If every church is autonomous and independent, then what authority does that ordination certificate have when you go to another church? None. None. Is none the right answer? (laughs) (laughs) So who cares, in one sense, that a group of people in another state, another church, said you were a good pastor? What about this church? Mm-hmm. Now, that could just sound sort of like being contrary for the sake of it, or it could be Baptist tradition. So let's see what the first Baptist tradition said, Baptist confession said. Uh, that the office of 22, that the officers of every church or congregation, so the officers being elders, deacons, are tied by office only to that particular congregation where they are chosen. Therefore, they cannot challenge by office any authority in any other congregation whatsoever, except, and this is sort of, I don't know if he's being sarcastic, except that they would have an apostleship. Right. So Paul, the apostle, could go to any church he wanted and tell him what to do. Correct. Pastors, on the other hand, local regular members, can't. So but this is interesting. The pastor of every church or congregation are tied by office only to that particular congregation where they are chosen. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So what is ordination? And this is a big question a lot of people have. What is ordination? Ordination, it seems what he's saying, is the local church elects their elder, makes them the elder, and he has authority over that congregation. In other words, he's ordained to be pastor. So if you were to leave that church, go to another church, what would need to happen? That other church would have to vote for you. So ordination is local church electing the pastor, ordaining him or deacon. And that's what the hell was this saying. So this is a I think a lot of guys are trying to figure out what to do. And they're reading, they're reading the Bible, which is good. Well, I hope they're reading the Bible. They're asking their pastor's friend, which is good. They're asking older pastors, which is good. They're reading Spurgeon, probably, maybe, which is good. And then they're like, we don't know what to do. What they're not doing is they're not looking at 400 years of tradition, going all the way back here to 1611 said, people have thought through these things. It's not the first time this question has come up. Let's see if, there are other churches that believe the same as we do and how they applied it. So this is one of those things. So ordination is simply at one congregation picking an officer for their church, an elder for their church. When you go to a new church, you get reordained. So are you a Baptist now, Mark? Have I convinced you? Yeah, you, I'm converted. Converted from non-denominational That's right. to Baptist. Yes. That's a pet peeve. Non-denominational. So Baptists are charismatic. Yeah. That's another episode. What's our next episode going to be? We can tease it,
0: yeah. If, you, if you're know. gonna stick to the schedule,
1: we're not gonna stick to the schedule. So don't.
0: One of our next episodes
1: will be. One of the next episodes will be. Well, we're gonna review the Trail of Blood. Yes. I can warn you. I'm not gonna warn you.
0: I can. You, you warn them that you will not warn them.
1: Uh, no, I was gonna say. I guess it's pretty obvious. Trail of Blood is not a reliable source of history. And if you disagree with that, tune in. Sometime in the near future, we'll we'll go through it more closely and just see if it holds up. Uh, the book we're reading from for future reading is called Readings in Baptist History, Four Centuries of Selected Documents by Joseph Early Jr. And it's a collection of Baptist documents. So we want to know what is a Baptist? Let's read what they said. So it's got a bunch of documents written by Baptists over the years, starting in 1611, going all the way up to 2000, 41 different documents includes Trail of Blood, It includes um, The Wall of Separation that Thomas Jefferson wrote, Formation of the Baptist Union, uh, Baptist World Alliance, the impact of J. Frank Norris on Baptist life. So all this good stuff. So if you want just a real short collection of early Baptist works or or typical Baptist works, get Readings in Baptist History by Joseph Early, Jr. So uh, to prod
0: you on one thing that you brought up, so you talked about how we should look to history. So what would you say to critics
1: that say— Baptists are a biblical authority. Right. So Baptists, well, Thomas Helwes would say, the Bible is the absolute and perfect standard for our faith. True. That's the same thing that Anglicans say. So what makes us different than Anglicans? And who's going to help us figure out how we're different than Presbyterians who also believe that the Bible is the absolute standard? So what we say is let's look to other people who believe like us, who read the same Bible as us, and hear what they say about the Bible. The thing is, you do it every week. Right. Well, also, I mean, so Ephesians
0: promised that teachers would be given to the church. And that yeah. includes across history. So if right. those teachers that were given to the church wrote down some of their instruction on how to apply and understand the yeah. scripture, then that's profitable to the church across time.
1: Yeah. So you if you go to church, you listen to a man explain the Bible to you mm-hmm. a pastor, Sunday school teacher. And no one complains about that. So what we're doing here is we're listening to another pastor by the name of Thomas Hellwiz. He didn't preach to us this Sunday. He wrote his stuff down 400 years ago. And so we're reading it. So if it's profitable to listen to your preacher, it's profitable to listen to a a preacher from 400 years ago. And you should use the same discernment. You should absolutely same discernment. Open your Bible, read the passages he's reading, compare them. And when he's wrong and when Hellwiz is wrong, you just don't believe what they, what they say. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't learn from anybody. It's sort of, A lot of Baptists think you you sort of read the Bible with your fingers in your ears and and don't listen to anything. Right. And then when you look up from the Bible, you have all the truth, and then you can tell other people. But the Bible clearly says not to do that. It says faithful teachers who can teach others also. So history is just an accumulation of good teachers that we can look to.
0: Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, you can email us at podcast at historyandhope.com or message us on Twitter at History and Hope. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any podcast app of your choice.